Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 468, and I'm joined today by Frankie Boyle, returning. That's really, I'm, I'm always excited to talk to Frankie, but um, I was really excited this time. If you didn't catch the previous episode, go way back. I mean, we talk about how long it's been. It was six years ago, so a lot has happened since then, so we had a lot to catch up on, and we did. Quick warning, there were a few... T- tech issues as we address slightly at the beginning so the recording quality isn't quite as good as normal it's still dope though don't panic it's still i've got the best producer in the land shout out to to buddy peace so he's made this sound wondrous but if there is a little glitch or um yeah inconsistency here or there apologies in advance um one of the things that we talk about in this chat is frankie's new novel meantime i can't recommend it enough it's available now when we recorded this a couple of weeks back it had just come out and yeah it's a times best seller it's award nominated give it a look before we get into it we're brought to you as ever by speech development records.com we can get merch and all the goodness over there uh patreon.com forward slash scroobius pip is where you can support the podcast for a dollar a month if that, it might be two, two dollars a month. It's somewhere in that area. So if you're enjoying all this free content for, you know, seven, eight years now, then you're welcome to throw a dollar in there. But no pressure. You can also catch me on twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio. I'm, I'm messing about on there regularly. And we got a, a, a Discord connected on there, which is a really nice community. And finally, I've got a new podcast out called Tell Me About It with Scroobius Pip and Stuart Whiffin. So if you want more of me rambling, go and check that out now. would really appreciate you, you, you giving an episode or two a, a listen, a liking, subscribing, all that good stuff, sharing it, reviewing. That would be lovely. So, uh, yeah, you can go and do all of that. But for now, this is episode 468 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Frankie Boyle. Right, here we are. Um, after both of us showing our ages, struggling with tech issues for, for 10 minutes, I'm joined by Frankie Boyle. How are you, man? Are you relaxed now? I don't want to, I don't want you starting out stressed because of tech issues. I know that can be a, a thing. No, I feel a sense of victory as a like nearly 50 year old man who just got a thing working. Yeah. I mean, I love that we went through all the kind of high tech things that we should know, all of us going like garage band this, and we're using <laughs> voice memos, which is the most basic of basic. It's literally just press the red button and we're good to go. <laughs> I love it. But how are you in general, man? We've the last time you were on here, it was 2016, and that's when everything started to go wrong. Um, <laughs> so of that. A lot has happened since then, right? COVID, Jubilee, Boris, Tories, Prince dying, David Bowie dying, Trump. Prince being murdered, mate. Yep. Yeah. Is that Se- your yeah. is that a rumor? Don't for a second believe he just died. He looked fit as a fiddler. Yeah, it's true. It's true. He was in good shape. <laughs> It's a healthy young man, but yeah, how are you in general? How is how is life treating you? It's it's been weird fucking times, but every yeah. time we chat, I feel as if you've got it all under control. 
Yeah, man. I've I've been down here for nearly a month now. Yeah. Um, I've worked without a day off for like five weeks. So I feel a bit like a kind of Robinson Crusoe type feeling, you know, like if when he got picked up by the boat, he must have just babbled a whole load of fucking pish. Yeah. I feel now like this might go a bit like that. Just babbling stuff about fucking dolphins or whatever Robin's I'm here for it, mate. I'm here for it. <laughs> I love it. What are you working on at the moment then? Doing a fringe show mainly. So yeah. I've got to write this fringe show. And part of the thing with the fringe is like, it's supposed to be an, an arts festival. Yeah. I'm doing these gigs and they're supposed to be work in progress gigs. But I feel as comedy's gone on, it's kind of calcified into a product. Do you yeah. know what I mean? 100%. You're expected to to produce things rather than create things. So I'm in this place at the moment where I'm kind of rebelling against that a bit. So on stage, so I'm kind of doing 50 minutes of tight jokes and then I'm doing like the the riskiest, (laughs) weirdest stuff right at the end. Like So the last 10, 12, 15 minutes is just like sometimes really not landing. And it's quite long stuff that, um, you know, if it ain't going to work, it ain't going to work. Kind of thing. Do you enjoy that, though? I do enjoy it. There's kind of a buzz, isn't there, of, of yeah. the pushing the boundaries of, of the silences that you're, I don't know, if you're aware they're, they're potentially coming because of the art that you're creating, because of the way you're creating it, then they can be kind of thrilling. <laughs> yeah, and I think the trick is almost to not have a fallback. Yeah. If you don't have something you can format, you're like, well, it's this. It's these three sections at the end. And potentially you might just go zero, zero, zero at the end and leave. Yeah. And you, but I've got to do something to push it back towards being a kind of creative thing. Because like yeah. for years when I started out, it was like, God, I thought of something that day and I'd go on and I'd talk about it and I'd get somewhere with it. And I feel increasingly for everybody, it's got this thing where you're expected to deliver a version of what your fucking DVDs were like or something or, yeah, or, or, you know, a perfect tour show or whatever, you know, and I just, I can't be fucked with that. How, how do you feel about expectation from your past work, from your fan base, not to get really deep in the, in the mud right at the start, but you had a bit of backlash recently when you spoke about Ricky Gervais's trans jokes and people saying, well, you're meant to be pushing the boundaries and sh- sh- shocking your Frankie Boyle. And to be clear, like before you even answer, like I consider Ricky a mate. I didn't enjoy any of the trans jokes, partly because it felt like they were just punching down and partly because I didn't find them funny. Like they, that was a big thing for for me. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't personally into them. But because you're you, <laughs> it's if you speak up on this, people will... Or flag that. So, yeah, what's your kind of outlook and, and position on that at this point? I suppose that's if everyone just judges you by what they remember of your DVD in 2010. Or, no, more what they've read in a newspaper in. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, what was yeah. the one shocking, the shocking yeah. controversy? It's like, oh, well, there you go. And of course, the newspapers love to quote them. They go, I can't believe he said this, and then, like, yeah. print five of them. And you're like, well, why are you printed it then? Yeah, stop spreading it about, mate. Yeah. But I, I think there's that in, I mean, I kind of think I said what I had to say about that particular thing. Yeah. But I think it's essentialism. We've got all this essentialism in our culture that's like, oh, God, you tweeted something in 2008. That's who you are. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're all kind of at some point collaborating in that. of going, oh, he said this 20 years ago or, you know. And um, people, I, I really don't believe in essentialism. I believe people, you know, do change and develop and grow. And if I didn't believe yeah. Like life would be incredibly depressing. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of you know the stuff that's called left melancholia. 
you know, that stuff about yeah. traditionally since, you know, the, the start of the 20th century, the, the, a noted phenomenon has been people who agitate for things like socialism or, or some kind of fairer society do get a kind of melancholy and it creeps into the whole sort of discourse. And I think part yeah. of it comes from essentialism. You know, it's the idea that, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to be a socialist or if you're going to hope for a better world, you have to believe people can change consciousness, right? Yeah. And nowadays you've got to believe they can change consciousness pretty fucking quickly in big numbers because that's what we need, you know, because we've got yeah. climate change, we've got a we've got an end point that previous generations didn't have. Yeah. If you're rooted in an essentialist ideology where you're like, oh, those people are whatever my least favorite tweet of theirs is or something they said in a podcast or whatever, then yeah. then of course you're going to get mired in melancholia because you know those are those are two opposing ideas. Yeah, completely I completely agree. And it, again it's I think there's two things there. I think there is almost a shame around developing, improving, changing your views and opinions and and things like that. It, I mean, it, in its simplest form, it goes back to the "oh, you've changed, man," like as if it's an insult. So like, yeah, I, I try to change. That's that's part of of life. You're meant to be changing as you go along. But I think also it's the the pitching everything as you've got to be the winner or loser. We're against each other. And social media allows that. So I know I've done it before that someone, in fact, I did it a few nights ago. I was tweeting about an MMA event and someone pulled me up on something and I saw their point, but I instantly wanted to find out where they've made a mistake in the past. So I was like, I wonder if they're a fan of this person or of this, because if they've supported them, <laughs> then they can't ever go at me for supporting this. But, and I'm like, I backed off of it because I was like, I, I found the evidence and I didn't use it. And that was a big moment for me because I, I couldn't resist going in the deep dive and going, oh, well, you tweeted about this person and they're a homophobe and, and this and that. So but yeah. then, as I said, I found it and then I kind of, the black mirror, I saw myself in the reflection of my phone and went, what are you doing you don't need to win this. That person's allowed that opinion. I'm allowed my opinion. Let's move on with our lives. It's not It's not a battle that has to be won. And loads of that stuff is just conflict-driven apps. They're based on conflict. So now, I don't know how your Twitter looks now, but my Twitter has a thing that's like for you yeah. and it's just annoying stuff. And then it has what's really trending. And in the for you, it's like Dave Chappelle, Ricky Gervais, fucking trans stuff, all this stuff, right? And then in the the actually trending things, it's just football and and like um yeah. in boy bands. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's 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 I I think we have to make conscious decisions to rig the algorithm because I was watching oh no, I was listening to a, a blind boy podcast about this and he had someone who's like a tech psychologist or something. It's quite a new thing. It was an amazing episode. I can't I'll I'll have to link it in the uh in in the info. But they were pointing out that it's not strictly accurate that social media pushes us towards anger and negativity. It pushes us towards high arousal emotions is the technical term. And that can be a dog or a cat or something that makes us happy. But particularly in the times we're in, we're going to spend more time doom scrolling and looking at miserable things. And therefore, like, again, it was that realisation that this algorithm isn't Dr. Evil or, or whomever else. It's not some cunning thing. It's not sentient. It's just crunching numbers. So... The it's because we spend more time going. Oh, what the, f- the fuck's this prick said now? And scrolling and and looking and looking at responses 
that it feeds us more of that. Whereas if we consciously go, oh, fuck, how cute is this dog? I'm going to really look at this dog and look at the other dogs posted and things like that, then it it should provide us more of that. So I think we can kind of, yeah, cheat the system in a way. That's another thing of getting out of melancholy, isn't it? And of choosing optimism. Yeah. Because there's only optimism. Because, like... (laughs) The, the other choice is just nothing. I've, I mean, I've often said this in the past, but like pessimism doesn't make sense because if you're pessimistic, why are you still talking? Yeah. You know, like I used to work in um, mental health. I worked in an asylum for a year and like catatonia is a real choice. So people go into catatonic depression. And I, yeah. I had a client who was a catatonic depressive most of the time. And that's a real choice. I mean, that, that seems to me to make logical sense, mm. but otherwise choose optimism. Because, I mean, if you're speaking, you're optimistic. Because otherwise, why are you speaking? Yeah, completely. I'm, I'm, I'm massive on that. I'm massive on acknowledging all the negative and choosing the positive routes and things like that. Like, it's not a denial thing. Like, the thing f- for me is the big quest for the meaning of life. And my outlook has always been, there's not really one, like, Dogs aren't looking for the... I keep bringing up dogs. Lions aren't looking for the meaning of life. No other animal is looking for the meaning of life. They just exist. They just are until they aren't. And that's all it is, really. And that could be depressing, but instead you can go, let's just enjoy it. Let's just just get on with it. We don't have to find it now. We don't have to go on this quest to find this this definition. We can just enjoy what there is and what we enjoy. And that's it. It doesn't have to be deeper than that. It doesn't have to be deeper. And also that that deepness or the ego or whatever that seeks that may just be an evolutionary hangover. Yeah. Because, you yeah. know, life was so hard at the dawn of man that, that, you know, we needed some, why do I have to go and spend seven hours a day collecting berries just to survive? Well, because I'm important. Yeah. You know, it's important that I survive. And maybe the whole thing is just a kind of evolutionary stepping stone and we can get past it, you know? hundred percent. That makes p- perfect sense. But, I mean, speaking of of kind of of burying yourselves in things of, of of the darker stuff. Can you tell me a bit about your new book? Because I don't know much about it, but you told me the topics are kind of addiction and grief and writer's block, and that's distraction pieces front and back. That's our that's our topics, mate. It's like, come on, this is this is the place for it. So, tell me a bit about it. It's it's a novel. Tell me how it came about, and and talk to me about these themes i guess well because i listen to some distraction pieces just to get in the mood for this <laughs> and i started to see you as a kind of crossroads or nexus of a lot of british creativity because you had mark thomas on and he was talking about you'd um, recorded a song based on a show of his you'd seen and then he'd started playing a song yeah. backstage or, yeah. or pre-show for his gag and all that kind of stuff when i started writing this i was writing a spoken word thing and I started listening to your stuff and I was like, I don't really know what spoken word is. So I'm trying to write a spoken word piece without really knowing what yeah. spoken word is. You were the only person I knew who did spoken word, right? I love it. It's your stuff and it's most like rap stuff and all that kind of thing. But then I thought of getting in touch with you because it wasn't working. And I was like, do I need to do this live? Do I need to be looking to do this piece live for it to work? And it's just this guy. And the idea for the guy was... I wanted to write someone who wasn't emphatic because yeah. what I don't like about modern culture, which I just find is so prevalent everywhere, is that we're all so emphatic yeah. and that 
there's a, a certain polemical side almost and a, and a rhetorical side to to much of human interaction and to much of discourse. And I thought I'd like to do something where someone is absolutely the opposite of that. I thought, well, I do. Well, I'll make him a value addict. And then I yeah. thought, well, what does that what does that give me? Well, it gives me something I really love in novels, which is people can people can ramble a lot of shit because they're wasted, and we can have yes. some long speeches. We can have other people joining in with them in a way that doesn't happen a lot in modern novels, like dialogue come terse. The thing I love about Murakami is the tangents he'll go off on and the the bits of history I'll learn in the middle of this thrilling story, but you've randomly just gone and given me this brief history of of a particular war and stuff like that. And that's, yeah, I love that, having that freedom to go, right, now I'm going to go off on this tangent because that's what the character would do. And that's what I love about Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo and people like that as well. So I thought, well, I've got those two things. I've got this person who doesn't um, really care very much about things or doesn't care enough to be emphatic, can't be bothered. But also we've got the opportunity to do some quite long sort of dialogue scenes. And I thought of like what I wanted to write about was like colonial Glasgow because I was wandering around Glasgow writing like during the pandemic and it was just like always sitting at statues and being by all these statues in Glasgow who mainly have sort of colonial figures. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I've got this all going. But then I hit the problem of, well, how do I do that as a spoken word? Because obviously then lots of the characters are going to be people with colonial backgrounds. So I've got a Scottish-Chinese character. I've got, a, I've got a Scottish-Indian lady. I've got, you know, all kinds of different people. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be doing their voices in a spoken word piece. <laughs> yeah. like, also, I don't even have the acting ability to carry that off. So what do I do? And then I found quite an interesting stage because I... I had this thing that was written as a kind of spoken comedy mm. that I had to change into like a written comedy. And I think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have thought about how, how it looks on the page as much, yeah. which which was a really big part of writing it for me was I, I started to realise that, you know, the way we read is we check the sentence. I don't know if you've ever read much about this, but we, we scan through the sentence, we check for the last word, we check where there might be some hurdles, things we don't know, and then we go for a read. And that's wow. kind of how our eyes work. We flicker across things. And that's quite difficult if you're doing comedy because obviously you're trying to surprise people with the last word. Yeah. So whatever. And they've already checked it. So I was looking then as I kind of transcribed it into a written form, how does this look on the page and how can I, how can I trick the eye? How can I break up the rhythm so that when you read it, it makes you laugh? I love it. That's really, that, that's fascinating because it's something I've played with to a lesser extent on fucking t- Twitter. I've right. learned that if I want to do a funny tweet that's got a reveal, I'll bury it. I'll bury the reveal a few words before the end because right. of exactly that. It's kind of, it jumps out if it's at the end. It's a, It's got a flag and it's waving. Whereas if it's a little bit ahead, then I need to make sure there's enough so it's still at the end, but it's not right at the end. And that's, again, yeah. I've never thought about how our eyes work, but exactly that. It's because of that. It's because you go, oh, I've seen what the... The the punchline is. So you have to bury it or wave it in certain ways. Yeah, and get into a rhythm of that so that they, and also break the rhythm up sometimes so that they they don't get into a kind of, oh, here come the jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. That sounds amazing. So, how was it when you realised it was a novel? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, was that a relief or was it like, oh, I've got a lot more fucking work to do now? (laughs) It's very much the second one. And it was also that thing, I've I've got a lot more fucking work to do and I'm writing 300 words a day. Because you can't, like, in comedy, it's almost always you write something that's not that funny. Say you're writing a pilot or whatever. 
it's all in the rewriting. So you just want to get it down. I mean, that's in most comedy writers' work. We'll get yeah. a version of the monologue down, and then we'll go back and make it funnier and funnier. Kind of Whereas with this, you're like, there's no point writing a not funny description of a, a bar, because like, what good's that in a comic novel? We'd come back and try and crowbar a joke into this beautiful description of a, a barman wiping a glass, right? Yeah. Like, it's got to be, it's more like building a kind of matchstick cathedral or something. You've got to go out and think of a funny angle in a bar and a, a funny observation and then yeah. come back with them. And I found I was like, I'd go out and I'd write three or four things and then I'd come back and I'd turn it into 300 words. But it was like really slow. Yeah. So do you find a, a walking around to be the key for the, the birth of the idea? Because I know when I've been working on scripts, I, I remember that, so I had a, the first script I had optioned was by Warp. And I remember I'd booked myself a week away in a hotel to get this this written. And in that week, I think I wrote, three or four pages but I walked around a lot and I thought a lot and I got home and wrote the whole script in the next week and I felt like an idiot for spending that time in a hotel but it was it was the going out and yeah. allowing it all to to move that it then meant I could come home and sprint it because it had all percolated enough you, you need know? the preamble you need yeah. this and also sometimes maybe you like you need the kind of downside because there's so many rewards to like what we do there's so much kind of like, you, you know, you get you get great feedback, you get you can get great financial rewards, you can get all kinds of things from this sort of work. Why wouldn't it be difficult at points? Why wouldn't it be a bit where you're stuck in a hotel going, oh Christ, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> the next page, of course there is. I've spent all this money on a hotel, I don't think I've got <laughs> anything done. I thought I was a writer, I'm not a writer. Uh, I mean, yeah. all the peanuts in the mini bar. I get home and I write it in my bed at my house. So there you go, well, that'll do. <laughs> I think sometimes I walk about because I'm like, at least now I'm not sitting on a bench with writer's block. I'm I'm wandering somewhere else to writer's block. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's like you set yourself your mind a task or homework or something, and it does it at some point. It may not be the point you want it to, but it will come to you. Speaking of writer's block, as that's one of the themes, when you are writing... Or when you are setting down to write, at what point do you stop? Because for me, I have to stop prior to running out of ideas as such. So one idea ahead kind of thing, because I get a lot of insomnia, particularly if I've got a creative project I'm obsessing over, I'd rather know where I'm starting tomorrow because I know I'll go to bed and whether I'm awake or asleep, it will be going through my mind, it'll be percolating so that I can then come down and start rather than get as far as I know in the story so far. Do you know what I mean? And then tomorrow is a, well, where do we go from here? I like to have a wee bit that I do in that bit. You know, there's a kind of hour bit where you're like, my head isn't quite working anymore. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to produce anything good in a linear way to like going, oh, I have this wee bit that I'm going to go and work on at that point. And it might be rubbish. I might write 10 lines of rubbish or two paragraphs of rubbish or something, but there might be a phrase in it or there might be two words in it or something. So I don't mind. I quite like keeping working when I'm tired, but yeah, it's not as good. Yeah. Drafting and redrafting and redrafting and redrafting. What's your kind of experience on that? Well, in this case, it was just like really not much redrafting. There was a redraft kind of for how it looks on the page. Yeah. Like a did a series redraft of that going like I've got I've got to make sure this this kind of works. 
And um, I read a lot of James Elroy, and he's he's really into how things pop off the page and how words look. And you know, he yeah. literally uses you know the KKK because he just thinks it looks great on the page, kind of thing. Wow, yeah. And so I did a draft of that, but like honestly, the the kind of um, file of what I took out of this of, of the stuff that that didn't go in. Yeah, I mean, it would be like sub ten thousand words. Yeah. Most people are like writing, you know, double the length of the actual novel. I think, but because it's comedy, you're just like, you're just trying to write the funny bits. Depends on the mind as well, because again, that's music to, uh, to my ears. Because hearing other writers talk about their redrafts, even in the spoken word days, has always made me feel like a fraud. Because I'm like, oh no, no, I wrote it, and that's what I'm performing for the next four years now. <laughs> kind of thing. That's how it landed. But I think it's because of all of those walks and all of those sits and all of those, like a lot of the drafting and redrafting is happening before it either gets on the page or before I close that laptop. If you know what I mean? Like there, there, there'll be redrafts as I'm going, but yeah, there's not an awful lot of, of, uh, after, after the fact. Do you have any sense of though, that some of that is kind of our ideas of that might be kind of professional gatekeeping? That's been 100%. Honest. So it's the idea of, yeah, if you're going to write a novel, it has to be meticulously plotted and there's going to be, you know, um, post-it notes all over the floor and you're going to have this room that's just your plot and yeah. you're going to have to, like, write 160,000 words and then whittle it down and then redraft the whole thing. And you're like, I wonder how many people actually do any of that and how much of it is a kind of professional class consciousness of, oh, you don't want to come in here, it's really tough. Yeah. Because yeah. I find that a lot of that wasn't necessary. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, I think it's all, I think it's the fucking arts, man. And people need to remember that. The arts are so personal and you and individual and unique. It shouldn't be a, I, I remember when I wanted to get into script writing, a, mate, a really dear mate of mine, Kelly Marcel, was an amazing script writer. And I said, what books do I need to read to learn? And she said, well, look, you're already acted and so, so you've read plenty of scripts so you've got a rough idea of the layouts and that read more scripts that you love read scripts of things that are amazing and don't worry too much about the books and now i'm going back to some books and stuff like that but again it was more her thing was uh, a lot of those books will again it's the gatekeeper thing that they'll tell you here's how you have to do this 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 and this and then you'll read a tarantino script and it won't do any of those things yeah, but they'll say again. This is an example I always use. I've I've argued with, with, with people in the past because Tarantino famously he shoots in order, in right. order of script. Whereas most people, you get a scene here and it's all pr- yeah. production, and people will always argue he can do that because he's Tarantino. And my <laughs> slight contrarian argument is, or is he Tarantino because he does that? yeah is it the other way around is it so good because he's so no here's how it has to be done rather than oh we'll do it all over the place and in the morning we're doing a scene where you first meet and in the evening you've been together for five years do you know what i mean and it's a bit it's a bit of a mess so i think there is yeah it's finding your own method and respecting obviously the the rules of it all but so did you just go into acting like untrained yeah i had I had a few different people kind of really give me a kick up the ass, and I re-spoke to one of them recently. One of them was was Paddy Considine because I had him on years ago, and I th- I'm sure it was off mic. I was kind of like, he was like, Sir, "Are you not acting or anything?" Because I'm clearly a nerd for it all. It's like I I adore all film and TV, and 
he he gave, he encouraged me and Riz Ahmed and a couple of others. Mm-hmm. And the first few acting gigs I got, I got them because I'm not trained, right? They were all medieval things. And the feedback I got was everyone else was doing your Shakespearean, here's medieval. And I turned up and knew my words, but said it kind of as me. And they liked that. But then after I'd done three or four gigs, I'm not, again, I'm <laughs> because I'm not posh, I've not got that arrogance to go, ah, it's all easy. I'm a natural. I then got some recommendations on classes I should take and, and books I should read. And I've, yeah, so I've buried myself in all that kind of thing. So it's a constant work in progress. But as I said earlier, with kind of scripts and that and writing in general, it's learning as much as you can and taking the bits that, you like and think work for you and happily discarding the other bits every book on acting i've read there's been bits i've adored and bits that i thought nah fuck that and even with the acting a, a, a class i went on the guy that recommended it amazing actor huge name one of my favorite actors all this kind of thing and after i finished it this second half of this course i said to him like i loved it but but, but, but there are a few bits I didn't get on with at all. And it was only at that point he said, yeah, completely agree. He'd, he'd done that course like 20 years ago or something. It was like, yeah, tons of it are fucked off completely. But it's a really intense course and there's loads of good shit in there. And it's hard It's hard to get up and do it and to go there and do it. And he's like, and that's, you know, a big chunk of the lesson. So, yeah, yeah I was pleased to nervously go, you know, you told me that this course was the course to do. There was yeah. chunks of it I thought were nonsense, but again, it was good. It was like, no, no, you were meant to. That's fine. Yeah, that's see, it's such a personal thing, though. Yeah, like you, of course, you would only be taking bits. I did them um, uh, Endgame this year in Dublin. I want to talk about it, mate, because it's Beckett who fascinates me, but I'm not an expert on. I don't inc- like everything I've seen of Beckett has blown me away. Previous g- guest and someone I'm a huge fan of, R- Robert Sheehan, was in it with you. And I find it fascinating because we were talking, I think, before you were doing that about you coming back on and you were like, oh, I'm going to do this play. And I was like, right, there was so much I wanted to to, uh, to know. So I've been excited to talk because you've not done loads of acting, right? Or loads of, of, of stage stuff. I've not really done any. I've yeah. played a couple of short films kind of thing. But then suddenly, like, to just be in Ireland and even, like, rehearsal for me, I've never been in a rehearsal. Yeah. It was just this mad experience of... You know, even the even the exercises you do to get to know each other, staging little memory plays and stuff every day. Yeah. It's just I'm quite introverted as a person, so it was yeah. incredibly strange. And then just an intense run because um, we did like six weeks, yeah, straight after the pandemic. It's all sold out, and uh, you're an old man screaming and dying in a chair every yeah. day. And what he- about the play? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Yeah, um, I just, and it, was, it was it was such a wild, cathartic roller coaster of a thing. I can imagine. Weirdly sacramental, just the whole thing of getting in, getting your costume on. I mean, it, like you know, I had a dresser who'd come and put this handkerchief over my head every night, touch me on the shoulder. Just the whole sort of odd ceremony of the thing. Yeah, uh, and then you're in this kind of machine of a play. Where Beckett is, I come to realise over the course of the thing, fucking with actors. Yeah. Part of it is he's not just doing it for the audience, he's also doing it to talk to the actors. And your character is called Ham, and you're telling these like stories very badly. 
and yeah. you're this sort of bad actor. And then there's a bit at the end where it's like raise hat and you have to raise your hat. And then uh, you have to take your goggles up or, or glasses as they would have most productions and you have to take them off and of course because there's speeches before that where you've got to engage a lot of emotion yeah. you're kind of either you've been crying or you know you, you're significantly distressed behind your goggles and Beckett's going here have a look at what I put this actor through to the audience but he's also making you show them yeah you know? then you go through this this kind of weird death scene at the end and it was like you know 20 minutes later you're walking over the bridge on the Liffey you know, off to have dinner in your hotel. And it's just an incredible sort of lightness of spirit would come over me. I've just, you're just like taking this thing off every night. It sounds astounding, man. How how was it when you first had to break the boundary of that social awkwardness in the rehearsals? Because as soon as you mentioned that, this acting course I went on, the first night I was there, I felt completely out of my depth and you had an option to get up and perform something either that you've learned or you're working on. And we had a little interval halfway through, and I thought, if I don't get up and do something tonight, I'm not coming back. I, I know, it could, because I feel so, so, so out of my depth, it's so scary. They're all, they've all done years of acting. They're throwing around all these terms I don't know. And it's friendly and welcoming, but I just felt really working class and and really out of place. I've told this, I think, once before on the podcast, but one of the things that got me through before I got up and did something was I looked around the room. (laughs) This is the most Essex thing, Essex thought I've ever had. I looked around the room and I thought, other than one, I reckon if it kicked off, I could beat the the shit out of everyone in here. (laughs) Um, and, and, And the one, I'd have a good go. You know, he looked a bit handy, but I reckon I'd have a good chance. And that's what gave me the confidence to get up and do it. Because like, ah, fuck it. You know, this is, I had to get myself into that mental space to get over that exact social awkwardness. So I can't imagine that with a group of people that you're about to spend weeks with and months with. And yeah. you don't get to do have this vulnerable moment and then have the option to just not come back. You know, and I did go back in the end, but that's you know, it's a different game here. How how was that? Well, I'm now wondering how many of them were thinking of beating the shit out of me. Yeah, I reckon you'd take Robbie. <laughs> I reckon you'd take Bobby, but um, I don't know. I don't know the rest of the cast. <laughs> I, I felt like really awkward on the first day because it was like it's just it's very intense. Like from yeah. the get go, we had a really great director called Daniel Tamar, but it is obviously going to be full on, and I'm just like, God, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I'm not an actor, and this part is massive, and the line learning is massive. Yeah. And I go out, and then I went to this restaurant and ordered, like, some vegetable noodles. And they went, oh, there's prawns in that. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, whatever. And I just had it. And I came home, I had the worst food poison of my life. I thought I was going to fucking die. I was just doubled over puking for, like, like so long. And I actually had a thought in my head, at least I'm going to die on Irish soil. And I was like passing out and stuff. And I, I phoned down to the um, reception, it was like three in the morning or something. And I was like, could you get me some painkillers or like something? And they're like, well, everything's closed. And I was like, can you just get me something? And then I think I like pretty much pass out on the floor. And they came up and they had bottles of seven up that they'd taken the lid off. <laughs> And I was like, you know, you give people flat lemonade when they're sick. And that's what they brought up. Yeah. I had this like flat lemonade. And then eventually I managed to get some painkillers and sort of fell asleep and got up. And I thought, well, I'm going to miss rehearsal and I'm maybe going to be out of action for a 
day or two or whatever. But I felt fantastic in the morning and I barely had any sleep. It was super ill and I just logged on and just, I don't know, suddenly the whole sort of thing had gone. You're just like, it was, a, it was like a reminder of mortality. Yeah. And it was like also the play. It was like, he, you know, he's going through this experience. He's coming towards this liminal point at the edge of death. And yeah. because you'd experienced that in a very cartoonish, you know, feeling sorry for yourself way, suddenly I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I can abandon all this social awkwardness and let's just go for this. This is a thing about mortality. And ultimately we're all in that game. I love it. I, I, Within acting, the thing that I obsess over the most is finding those truths and parallels. And I remember I was, I was doing a TV sh- show in Canada during the pandemic and I went for some pizza with the the female lead and they were saying how they were a bit nervous because the male lead is fucking really established and really known and he's you know he's the loveliest guy but he's very intent he's this amazing actor and it was perfect because I was like you've read the script right and she's like yeah I was like you two are partners and you're the new one it's like it's there you should, don't ignore this. Like, just steer into this. If you're nervous <laughs> as an actor, that's in the fucking script. You're the new cop, and he's the established cop, the one that's done everything and all this. Don't fight any of that nervousness or discomfort or awkwardness, because that's that's there. And again, if you've literally, if you're playing an old man that's dying in a chair, if the night before you've kind of been in your hotel room almost dying, fucking a. You steer into this. This is fucking. This is a beautiful thing. It's why I was. It's why I'm obsessed as well with getting my stammer into a role because because again of the the rawness and the truth of it. And one of the inspirations was that was seeing Jess Tom, also known as Tourette's hero, doing a Beckett play. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a one person thing. It was incredibly fast. But obviously they have Tourette's, so the Tourette's was something that even Beckett couldn't fuck with from beyond the grave. That was out of his control. And it was one of the most emotional things I've ever seen live because it is this very intricate, fast, as loads of Beckett is, fast, wordy, all these things. But it was torn apart and punctuated at points and the the wheels were coming off and then it had all come back together because of, of the Tourette's and... Yeah, I love shit like that. I love shit like that in art of going, right, this isn't in our control. We can't fake this. I think you would have loved that. Yeah. yeah. For all that stuff of you have of the estate and stuff now, it's got to be like this and all that. There's loads of things in his notebooks where he's just like, that didn't work. We changed it. <laughs> the yeah. Next yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try this line. And, you know, sometimes if that doesn't work, we'll do this. And, you yeah. Know. I love it. It's exciting. Well, I mean, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, you touched upon in your your novel, Walking Around Glasgow, and seeing all the statues and things like that. I want to talk a little bit about um, Frankie Boyle's tour of Scotland because I've told you this and I've told the public this, but I think it's one of the best travel series of all time. And the writing on it, your writing on it, it came to mind as you were talking about writing some spoken word because it feels like there's some spoken word pieces in the links or the the dialogue there because it's so intricately written how was that to work on how much of a passion project was it you know tell me a bit about that because getting that scottish history across in an interesting and entertaining and funny way it must have been a lot of fun it was yeah it was good 
And it was like um, based around gigs as well, yeah. which I think is the only time I've ever done anything like that. But it was interesting to take it to some different gigs and get yeah. sort of different energies off them and, you know, yeah. mess about a bit and, and, you know, have a show, but also kind of, you know, do the show a different way every night in, in, in different towns and stuff. I think that is quite cool because, you, you know, in the modern thing of like a, a big special and, you know, doing the Apollo or whatever, they yeah. all start feel a bit samey doesn't it whereas if you're in some mad fishing town bamming people up there's a certain joy to that yeah um, exactly and, and uh, i had an interesting experience of it actually which just because we started out talking about the internet and stuff but like um there was a guy online who's a really good guy but he was like we did a section on it with a counselor where he's talking about how glasgow like a lot of the streets are named after like slave streets and stuff mm-hmm or named after, like, so Jamaica, Jamaica Street, things like that, named after, you know, Scotland's interest in uh, the British Empire and in the slave trade. And so I had someone online who was sort of going, yeah, you know, you're sort of, you know, doing this because it's like a, a thing that, like, you sort of rehabilitate yourself and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this is a kind of door for people like you to push on kind of thing. And I, I DM'd them and I was like, it's not like that at all. I mean, it's actually quite difficult to get that kind of thing on TV. And like, I had to put up a certain amount of effort, like like yeah. quite a big amount of effort to get that bit on. And then I had to have another amount of effort to, to keep it in the edit and to keep it at the length I wanted and to make the point I wanted to know that kind of stuff. And he was like, oh, okay. And then we talked about it a bit and like about, you know, what I was trying to achieve and all that stuff and about representation and representation of British TV, which I think has, has been a real problem in Britain. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are this collapse in imperial culture or collapsed imperial culture that doesn't have the voices that it has created within its own culture. Do you know what I mean? So it can understand itself because it doesn't allow its components parts to speak. It's literally like, you know, if you tried to silence all of the different parts of your own mind, I'm just going to operate on instinct or logic or whatever you know so we've got all these different elements within within Britain who many of whom are denied a voice but anyway it was great because like we met up the other night we went for dinner and we had a chat about all that and he's a really switched on guy and stuff and I mean I think you can you know you don't always have to agree 100% with each other and people don't have to buy your point at the end of it or whatever yeah. but you can sort of I think you can especially if you get offline you can reach beyond these things yeah. and sort of go look this is what I was trying to do here, this is what it was like. You know, you 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 can have your point of view as well. And, and you know, and we we can get somewhere useful out of that. I love it. I love it. And one of the things I love about, again, this is, you know, it's clear that, you know, I'll do all this privately as well. You know I'm a big fan of New World Order as well. I think it's I think it's a fucking fantastic show. Um one of the things I love about that is the variation of voices and opinions that you get on there. And again, Ignorant people or bigoted people will suggest box-ticking representation and not realise that the beauty of representation is the variety, the variation. Again, an example I always give is a greater push for representation in cinema is given us some of the best stories in recent history. And where the reason it's needed is you only have to look at the amount of remakes and reboots to see that a lot of old white men have run out of ideas. 
So yeah. now we need a lot of other people's opinions and stories and lives and histories and accumulated um, influences for interesting stuff. And yeah, so I, I guess how important was it or how involved were you on New World Order on choosing whose voices you get on, who you have a chat with, who you who you bring into it? Yeah, I mean, it's me. Yeah. I, I sort of um, go through the list like um, every series and, and it's, yeah, it's, I basically sort of choose all that. Love it. I think, you know, that whole thing of box ticking and stuff, that argument's never been made properly, has it? Because if you want to make that argument properly, you've got to go, you're ticking a box there and this isn't as good. You can't yeah. really point to an example of that in British comedy where you go, well, you've got better representation there and it's not as good. Like any show where you've got better representation is always better. Yeah. You know, it's, it's barely even exists as an argument. Yeah. I, you know, some episodes I'm just really proud of in, in terms of talking about like racial politics and stuff like that. But it's better, I think, when it goes outside of that stuff. Do you know what I mean? And it's just that you've you've then got a more representative and less exclusion. I think it's really about exclusion because this used to be called diversity. Do you remember that? Yeah. People were talking about diversity when I first started in telly. And then they would talk about representation. It's really about exclusion, you know? If you've yeah. got 20% of the population who are regularly not represented, that's that's because you're excluding them. There's no there's no real excuse for that, right? Yeah. Once you get rid of that, and you can have you know everybody's experience on everything, that just lifts everything you do. I think. At least still got a way to go in terms of that. You know what I mean? And it comes to what you were saying as well about that guy who felt had a certain opinion about um, that section of your of 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 your your travel show. But then when you could actually talk to each other directly, it's a different thing. And that's the key of, of of removing the exclusion is you can no longer hide behind the myth of what you've been told this community is or that community is or this gender or whatever else it may be. Because there's a real variation of people there having different views and opinions. And it's not as simple as here's what black people think here's what trans people think it's like no you've got a variety of different people with different opinions and that's that's that makes all the simple arguments harder to make all the ignorant arguments harder to make because you can't group them all in yeah i mean you just got to be open to learning because like if i was to say you know i know everything about trans issues and issues that affect trans women and men in britain like i mean that's obviously not true i mean and, and if you're if you're going to cover that you need to get those people in to tell their stories because there's no there's like there's no way anyone else can do it really one of my favorite things so honestly it was i think it was also in 2016 i had a jordan gray on who's a trans comedian has got an amazing show recently on paramount on comedy central and got more things on the way and it's one of the best conversations to go back and listen to because there's so many points that i'm just there like i want to learn i want to learn just tell me this how about this how about this and there's points where Jordan has to say, well, Pip, I have to remind you, I can answer that question for me, but I can't answer it for the trans community. Because <laughs> my ignorance at that point was I didn't have a lot of trans mates. So I'm like, I don't understand this. Let's try and have... And, you know, we were. it was a safe space. They were a fan of what I did and things like this. So it felt comfortable. But there were so many great moments where it was kind of almost patting me on the head and going, remember, <laughs> here's how I feel about that. But we don't get together and have a big meeting and go, right, we're all okay with this term now, are we? Are we all okay? Agreed? Agreed. So I can only give my 
individual opinion and and things like that again it's great for learning it made me feel like a fucking idiot but yeah it was perfect it's like no yeah i get that now that was a really stupid thing to think well if you if i want the answer about trans stuff i'll ask a trans person no that's not (laughs) that's not the answers like an easy example is i started working a few years back with stammer who are the british stammering association and i really quickly learned i don't know anything about stammers i've had one my whole life but I don't know anything about it. I've just got on with it. So I was sitting there within the first kind of meeting being educated constantly and thinking, <laughs> fuck, people have probably asked me about this loads of times and I didn't have a clue. It's like, all right. Yeah, so- I've got three anecdotes, but no actual signs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or I was, I, was, I, was, I was backstage with Blind Boy recently and he told me that I'm neurodivergent because stammers come under neurodivergence. I had no idea. It was like... I'm pretty sure they do. And then he looked at it. I was like, yeah, they do. I was like, all right, cool. That's good to know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I've just been educated. I was like, well, there you go. I've learned that then. Because he asked me if it comes under neurodivergence. I was like, oh, I don't think so. And then it's like, no, it does. So, yeah, it's always interesting. Um, I want to ask, is it a relief or an annoyance to watch the state of the world when you're not doing a series of New World Order? Because I can't decide if it's this wonderful outlet for all the shit that's going on or if you're not making it then you can kind of hide you don't have to be as in it you don't have to be as buried in it you know because when you are making it although it's probably a great outlet fucking hell you you have to be knee deep in that all week to get that show at the end of the week together and it's not good times to be knee deep in in the news absolutely number two yeah (laughs) it's just like you know if you if you don't have to be watching it all um, so there's some clip today of Keir Starmer being berated by someone in Liverpool. And I'm like, well, I can avoid that because yeah. by the time we get to October, that will be an old clip that everybody's yeah. seen, yeah. you know? And it's like, you can just absent yourself slightly from some of the horror. And that's, that's good. And I think it's necessary as well as a, as a comic to, you know, not be on, on the news and on the internet all the time you've got to be reading some stuff and doing some other projects and things to to kind of be an interesting enough person to talk about it yeah well i mean i feel like i'm i'm being all all professional um interviewer here but it feels like a few things come together with this next question as we're getting towards the end and i'll let you go to bed in a minute we've spoken about kind of spoken word and monologues and we've spoken about editing how do the end of episode monologues come about on new world order because again i think they're just such an astounding bit of writing every week um i bumped into you once in soho when you were kind of working through one and going through stuff and you were kind of knee deep in um yeah in some intense stuff but how do they come together how much do you have to remove and edit out because they can get quite dark and how easy are they to deliver because again it is this big rousing monologue that gets bigger and bigger and it does again instantly make me think of spoken word gigs and things like that where it's here's this big piece but you're having to write a new one every week yeah. you know so it's a different thing like i can feel confident or when i was doing spoken word i could feel confident in really throwing myself into this piece because i know it inside and out you've got to throw yourself into it because of the pacing because of the beats because of the the build but you you've probably had to learn it that morning kind of thing how yeah. how is that <laughs> well I've just started, so yesterday I've started doing the first outs, like like on stage. Yeah. Considering like the series won't be till the 
start till the end of October. Yeah. So that's how long it takes to kind wow. of hone them. So that's I'm easy. tons of gigs between now and then. I'm doing about three or four gigs a week when we're doing the series yeah. and just before the series in pre-production. So I might do about 40 warm-up shows trying out stuff and I would be doing these in, in all of them and in other gigs before that. So basically you start out with one that's overwritten and I write them a lot with a guy called Charlie Skelton, who's great. Yeah. And sometimes we write them in the writer's room, but not often these days, but like some really good ones have come where we've all had a line in the writer's room kind of thing. But mostly it's me and Charlie now. And I'll kind of do them live, see what works and start trimming stuff. And then there'll usually be a stage where I'll add things, particularly to the start. So you try and get them on board and create some confidence with them. So there's often a bit at the start where there'll be like three big jokes that lead you into, it's a bit like, you know, like the Simpsons structure where they'll yeah. have a mini episode at the start and then they'll go into the thing. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, we can do that and we can connect those two. Those are the best ones. Yeah. We've got a bit of almost stand-up quality stuff at the top. And then we take you into this kind of weirder journey. Yeah. I love it. Think I love few- it. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's amazing, and it's it 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 makes perfect sense because of as I said, the intricacy of them and and the build. So I guess I mean t- to start to wrap things up. What's ahead? The book. I mean, what's the book called? We've talked a load about the book and haven't actually said the name of it or any details of when it's coming out. Anything like that? Let's do that bit. It's called Meantime. So it came out on. Thursday, but I think Warstons have had some problem with their warehouse or something. So they're quite rare sightings in the wild. So if yeah. you see <laughs> get one. I love them. I love uh, it. And uh, it's um, a crime novel, really. So it's got nominated for um, a crime prize in Scotland, which I'm pretty chuffed about. And I'll get to Amazing. go to a, a crime event, which would be yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that'd be amazing, man. Does Irving Welsh have to be there? I'd imagine that's, yeah. like, that's less a necessity. No, I, uh, I don't think he's nominated, mate. Not this oh, year. there you go. Look at this. Damn right. Loved his book, Crime, though. Did you read that? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. I thought the series of it absolutely smashed it as well. It was just really weird. It was on BritBox, which, yeah, yeah it was. Uh, I'm not that familiar with BritBox, but they, they, because I was having him on the podcast, they kind of sent it through. And it's fucking amazing. It was, yeah, it's really fantastic, but it seemed to go under the radar a little bit. But yeah, I recommend it. I think the thing with books is you're trying to reach the people who would like it, who might not always be the people that would get the book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so there's yeah. There's a slight yeah. difference there where you're like, I know there's a chunk of people out there who would love that. They're not necessarily the sort of people who, you know, going to Waterstones looking at the new releases. Kind of thing. Yeah, I completely understand that. I completely understand that. I really hope it gets out over that book by an audience to the people who who would like it or who would like it more. Um, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, I love it. So what else? And you're doing the fringe? Are you doing yeah a full run, a short run, a long run? What's, what's yeah, no, I'm doing a full run. Part of the idea was originally my son, because I want him to have more cultural interests, much as he is a fantastic rounded human being. He's very into football. And I was like, well, get a flat in Edinburgh. We'll go and see a shore too during the day. I'll do my gig and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We'll have a great old time of it. And he has put up some spirited resistance. <laughs> Maybe I've gone to the theatre. And of course, he's like, you know, at age now, he just wants to hang out with his friends, you know, yeah. play football. And he's got a social life, all this kind of stuff. So it has ended up that I'm booked at the festival, but just commuting. Uh, oh, wow. Just- 
you're from Glasgow, but it means I get to see the kids every day. Yeah. Um, I just go and do a gig at six-ish every day and come home. Should be cool. I love it. That's perfect, though, right, as well. That's kind of – it sounds obviously it would have been nice to have the dream father-son <laughs> cultural experience, but <laughs> – Part of me is relieved as well, though. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> the pressure's on you to find all these things that are going to be entertained. Yeah. It's back to the days of, of, of being on a date and putting on a film that you love and having the pressure of, are they going to enjoy this? Are you, why aren't you laughing? This is, this is great, except it's with, it's with your own, own blood. <laughs> are you enjoying this? Is this fun? Is this good? Is this bad? Am I a good dad? <laughs> well, you're picking that weight off my shoulders. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And then... Is it offer that straight into the next series of, of New World Order, right? Yeah, I'd be straight into that. Have you got any more acting plans? Because again, this play just—I'm I, I, gutted. I wasn't—I'm gutted. It was only in in Dublin, and I, I wasn't over there. But yeah, have you got any more plans there? No, not really. It's, it's hard to imagine really doing it again. It just felt like felt like a one-off, really I mean, bad thing to do. And yeah. Maybe that was it. I, I love it. Well, thank you for taking the time, man. It's always a, a, no, a pleasure to catch thank up. You. Thank you for taking the time. And sorry for all my technical snafus and all my bollocks. It's all good. It's perfect. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Frankie Boyle. I told you I got the best producer in the land. You probably didn't even notice the glitches or or little inconsistencies there. Shout out once again to Buddy Peace. If anyone's looking for a podcast producer, he's been doing mine for years now, so uh, I can't recommend him enough. Um, He also produces... tell me about it with Scroobius Pip and Stuart Whiffin which is my new podcast so go and check that out now and check out as you will have heard the new additions to the Distraction Pieces Network Sex with Charlie and Nina I mean I've given you a lot to check out there so I'm going to take it easy Uh, I'll be back next week as ever stay safe and stay sane ta-ta